if salvation is in fact a gift, then it must be received as a gift. And we have to treat other people as though they are not deserving of the gift of God, but neither was I. Neither was I. And so we have to impart that same grace to others who are banging their heads on all the same issues. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. We are starting a new series this morning, as you see, on 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be here for a long time. Who knows how long? I don't know, but we're going to be here for a long, long time. But what I want to do this morning is to set the stage for what this book is all about, because I recall as a little kid, uh, I would hear a pastor say, we're starting a new series, open up to this, and, and I'd start asking myself questions like, who wrote it? What is it about? You know, what are the themes? Who are the characters? What's happening in this city? What's the culture like? I wanted to see it, to smell it, to taste it, to touch it, to know what it's like to be in this environment. And sometimes people ask me, like, you know, why has God made you a, a, a pastor and a preacher? And I'll often jokingly remark, I'm, I have too much attention deficit to sit in the pew. So God's like, if you're not going to pay attention, just, just preach instead. So that's why I'm here, because I love digging deep into the word and understanding what it means and what it looks like. And that's my prayer for you this morning, that you get a sense of what is happening in this letter in its original context. I want you to see it, to taste it, and to touch it. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna lay the foundation for what this book is all about. And to do that, join me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now, stop right there. There's, there's a big word that we don't use very often, the word sanctified. And that is the Greek word agazio. Say agazio. And it literally means to be set apart. That's what it means. Not to be confused with another big church word we use a lot, which is sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification is that we are progressively growing in Christ's likeness over time as the Holy Spirit changes our heart from the inside out. But this word agazio, sanctified, is a determination that God has set you apart for a purpose. That's the point of this word right here. And the reason why it's so important for us to understand that is because God is revealing something about the nature and the character of the gospel. He wants to lay the foundation for us. So keep reading. Here's what we see next, that the Apostle Paul says to those sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, and called to be his what? What's the word? Holy people. So we just learned something fascinating about the gospel that we cannot miss, and the order and the sequence is incredibly important. So here, here's what God says about his gospel. He essentially says this, I have set you apart. I forgave you. I adopted you into my family. 
And only after the ink is dry on the adoption papers, everything is set, do I now say this to you. Now go and live like the children of God you already are. And this is a radical element of the gospel. We're going to see this even more as we walk through this text. But there's an understanding in our culture today of what, what we call moralism. And moralism is this. If you live like heaven, you go to heaven. And then there's cheap grace on the other side. And they say, well, if you live like hell, you get to go to heaven anyway because God's grace is bottomless. But the costly Christian grace that we see on shining display already just a couple verses into this is this. God has adopted you. He has set you apart. He has established kingdom purposes that he wants you to make a contribution in. And only after laying out the whole foundation that you have been adopted into the family of God does he say, go live like the child of God that you are. Live like a Christian. Live like a godly man or a godly woman. And then he says, this is, this is not about your awesomeness. This is not about your righteousness, your moral pedigree or anything like that. It is all the finished work of Jesus. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are the Corinthians? What is happening in this city called Corinth. Here's what you got to know. Uh, the city of Corinth, which is located in modern day Greece, it was, let's just say the original sin city. It was a port city. It was filled with Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. It was an economic center. It was a, a cosmopolitan port center. People constantly coming and going and buying and selling and all those kinds of things. So perhaps a helpful way of thinking about Corinth is three very well-known cities that we have today. It's kind of a combination of these three. Number one, New York for its business, its commerce, its diversity within the city. Number two, Las Vegas for its, uh, let's just say, wild living and the, the what happens here stays here mentality. And then finally, Miami for its beautiful beaches. If you kind of threw those three together, that's what Corinth is. And the one thing that Corinth has in spades is one word, anonymity. And where there is anonymity, there is typically an increase in sin. Why? Because children always behave better when mom's in the room. Am I right? They always behave better when mom's in the room. And so what we have in this context is people can come and go to Corinth, and it's kind of like the, uh, the incognito window on Google Chrome. You can look at whatever you want. You can experience whatever you want. No one has to know. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why we encourage you to live as transparently as possible, where you are loved, known, and accounted for so that you can have accountability in your life because as we've shared with you before, we believe if you are Velcroed to two things, you will grow. If you are Velcroed to the word of God and to fellow Christians who are devoted to the word of God, that you can be accountable to them and they can be accountable to you. But in Corinth, everyone is living anonymous lives. Corinth was also a city that is, was extremely sexually charged. 
There were, uh, as I mentioned already, Greek and Roman temples, but in Corinth specifically, they worshiped the god of sex. Literally, that's where the goddess Aphrodite, they said, resided. And in that one temple, there were more than 1,000 temple ladies of the night. And the idea here was, if you want to expand your business or your farm, or if you want to bless the, the fruit of your labor, or you want to become more successful, you want to get more money, or even if you want to have more children, the way to do it is to go to the temple. Like, just picture how toxic and, and terrible of an environment this is. What they're saying is, the best way to bless your marriage and your life and your kids is to head on over to the temple and to be unfaithful with your spouse. That's the way to do it. And Corinth lived this way. It was totally normal to them. If you have a thousand every single day who are conducting business, you just see how much this is happening in Corinth on a daily basis. In fact, Corinth was a verb in uh, the ancient Near East during that time. If uh, ever there was, let's say, a young man, he was making his first business trip going off to Corinth, his mom would sit him down and she would say, now listen, son, don't you go Corinthianizing your life when you go up to Corinth. You better behave. What is she saying? Don't be reckless. Don't be crazy. Watch out. Corinth is a dangerous place to go. And so in this letter, the Apostle Paul is in Corinth about 20 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And he's talking to a very small church that he knows really, really well. In fact, uh, we know that Paul planted this church. These are men and women that he brought to faith in Jesus. He loves them dearly. And if you know the missionary journey sequences of Paul, you know that he never stayed anywhere very long. Typically, he would stay in one city for a couple of weeks until, you know, he got flogged or beaten or threatened to be put to death and he'd run off somewhere else, right? Maybe a couple of months. But Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. That's a long time for Paul. A year and a half he stayed in Corinth. And I think he did it for two reasons. Number one, as we mentioned already, this was a strategic city. So many people coming and going. The opportunity for the gospel to expand was immense in Corinth. But number two, this was a really, really difficult countercultural city to live in. So difficult that he's having like things that we might take for granted today. Like the concept of telling Christians, you can't go to the, the temple any longer. That's not something that Christians do. That's not common knowledge to them. And so he's trying to lead them and to guide them and to explain to them what it looks like to live and to behave as a Christian. But as all things do, these good things must come to an end. And after 18 months, Paul eventually moves on. If you want to read up more on this, you can just take note, um, Acts chapter 18, and you can especially see the context there. And eventually he goes to Jerusalem, and then to Caesarea, and then he um, settles in Ephesus. And there he stays for two years. But while the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus, he starts hearing reports of what's happening in this tiny little church, and it breaks his heart. It crushes him. The very people that he loves, that he brought to faith, and he saw them growing in sanctification progressively in Christ-likeness. He leaves, and things go from terrible to worse. 
And so this letter is him addressing some of those concerns. Here's, here's kind of how it happened. Uh, there are some church leaders in this tiny little church in Corinth. They write a letter to the Apostle Paul. They say, here's what's going on. How do we address this? Give us some wisdom. Give us some advice. We, we don't know how to deal with all of this. And that's one of the reasons why I think this book is so practical is because the Apostle Paul is kind of doing a bit of a Q&A. You'll notice as you read through it, it's this issue, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, walking through very tangible, practical issues that they're banging their heads on. And one thing we should know is there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing in this little book that should surprise us. But what's helpful if we have the eyes to see is the godly wisdom that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives this little church, but also to all churches in all times and in all places. We need this book. Not because of some new cultural ideology that we're dealing with or some problems that we're dealing with in Canada right now. We need this book like we've needed it for 2,000 years. And we need it still today. So I've given you a taste of Corinth, but what was this little church like? What, what are the things that they're banging their heads on? You would think that um, if your church planting pastor was the Apostle Paul, and then the second pastor after Paul was one of the most gifted orators in, uh, across human history in Apollos, that the, the wealth and depth of knowledge and wisdom and insight in this little church would be amazing. And yet, not so much. They're struggling with a lot of things. Here's the first thing that they're grappling with. We know that there are a lot of many church battles, infighting, and divisions. They're gossiping about each other. They're triangulating against each other. They're talking about who's right and who's wrong and who's more moral and who's immoral and, and who's on the side, of, the side of truth and who's on the side of falsehood and who are the people that we should follow? Like, who are the most godly gifted leaders? Is it Paul or Apollos or is it Cephas? They're fighting and grappling with each other. And one thing we know from other extra-biblical sources is this church was really, really small. Probably no more than 100 members, but in all likelihood, 50 to 75. A tiny little gathering, and they're ripping each other apart. They're fighting with each other. We also know that this letter, and from this letter that there are, it's full of issues of immorality, especially sexual sins. In fact, as I've shared with you already, the Apostle Paul has to say things that might sound normal to us, but say things like, you've been grafted into the body of Christ, therefore, it is no longer appropriate for you to be grafted into a lady of the night at the temple. You can't do that anymore. But that has to be explained. That has to be talked about with them. They were also quite good at ignoring sin. Maybe the quintessential example of this that we'll get to probably in four or five weeks is there is a case of a young man who has taken on another lover who just so happens to be his stepmother, the wife of his own father. And because this church is so progressive, so accepting, they're proud of themselves that they're not, you know, bearing offense to this young man and telling him that's not appropriate. They're just saying, hey, you be you and I'll be me and everything's okay. So they're really, really good at ignoring sin. They would also have these really weird potlucks. 
in their homes. You have to remember that they didn't meet in big auditoriums like ours. They would typically meet in homes, especially the homes of people who have just a little bit more space, right? And in these homes, what they're trying to do is what the Apostle Paul outlines for all churches to do, to be devoted to the Apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. So they're getting together and they're doing what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. But here's what's happening with these issues of food that they're dealing with. They're gonna have communion, everyone brings their food, and on one side of the house you have all the rich folks. And they're drinking their their fine wine and having their caviar. And on the other side of the house, you have the poor who have nothing to bring. And they're going home hungry, and they won't eat or drink anything. There's even one instance in which as they're having communion, all the rich are drunk, and all the poor haven't had anything to eat or drink. Like, do you see how crazy that is? Like, I know that there's many churches today that have issues, but have you ever gone to a church service where half of the congregation was drunk on Communion Sunday? That's what they're dealing with. It's just commonplace, the issues that they're struggling with. They're suing one another over lawsuits, and their worship services were so bizarre that the Apostle Paul has to tell them, listen, I don't care what you think the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. We believe that our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, because people are getting slain in the Spirit and they're rolling around all over the place. And he's saying, what happens if a guest comes along and they they see what you're doing? They're, They're saying, these people are crazy. I had an example like that when I was a little boy. I was 10 years old and my mom was trying to find uh, a church that she could feel comfortable in and we went to a home church. And there, there were a lot of folks who were, let's just say, getting slain in the spirit and they're laughing and they're rolling around on the floor and and I thought to myself, this is kind of strange but maybe maybe it's new, I'm, I'm not acquainted with this. But on one particular day, the pastor of that church, he offered to drive us from Belleville, Ontario to the Toronto airport on the 401. You know, many of you know that this is a really busy highway. And he starts laughing, getting slain in the spirit. And I think to myself, we're gonna die. And he starts going all over the roads. And instantly, and my God, I, I, I thought to myself and I knew this is not of God. Not in this moment. And that's what Paul is addressing here so much so that he devotes three chapters to disorder in worship service and how to conduct orderly worship services. And then even after years of teaching from the Apostle Paul and Apollos, they're, they're banging their heads on things that we might consider to be Christianity 101, like the, the birth and the life of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, or the death and resurrection and bodily resurrection of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. These are things that they still don't fully understand and they're banging their heads on. And finally... One thing that undergirds all of these other topics, all these other issues, is a general me-first attitude. They are divided by pride. Pride is tearing apart this little church. Now, if, if I was writing this letter, I think I would be quite tempted to ream into this little church and to say, what are you doing? Do you not see what you are doing? And yet, I'm just so grateful that God chose Paul and not me because we see the heart of God in this opening chapter. 
in light of everything that you know, I want us to keep reading through chapter one and you will just see the heart of God. But let's start with the theme. I put it this way. If you're writing notes, uh, write this down. God gives guidance to the spiritually gifted but immature Christians in Corinth. He challenges believers to examine every aspect of their lives through the lens of the beautiful gospel. These are real people at a real time, in a real place, grappling with real issues that we're still grappling with today. So if you got your Bibles, look with me at verse four. Here's what it says. I'm so angry with you, you fools. Is that what your Bible says? No, no, you'd, you'd think that in light of everything that we know that's going on in this church, and yet, here's what it says. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus. Wow. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will always keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I don't know about you, but in light of everything that we just looked at together, I never would have expected that Paul would have started this letter that way. And yet he just revealed to us the heart of God, the way that he sees this little church. And mind you, the way that he sees you, the way that he sees me as children to be loved, who bang their heads on all sorts of issues of pride, of jealousy, of bitterness, of resentment, of sexual sins, immorality, greed, violence. And we might have all that stored up in our hearts. And yet we see Jesus who loves us and longs to draw us to himself so that we can be everything that he has created us to be. And in a word, here's what we see. We, we actually see it twice in the first four verses. We see the grace of God. What does grace mean? Very simply put, grace means this, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, we don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. No matter how hard we might try, we cannot deserve the salvation of our God. It has been given to us as a gift. And so once again, I want you to catch the reasons why Paul starts the letter the way that he does, which will prepare us for everything else we're gonna read in this book. It really lays the foundation for everywhere we're gonna be going for the next couple of months. We, if salvation is, in fact, a gift, then it must be received as a gift. And, and we have to treat other people as though they are not deserving of the gift of God, but neither was I. Neither was I. And so we have to impart that same grace to others who are banging their heads on all the same issues. That's the heart of God. 
So while we might get grace in our own lives just like everyone else, here's the temptation. Once we have grace for a while, once we sit in God's grace for a while, we begin to act like, you know what? I think I do deserve it. I think I am sharper than the average tool in the shed. I think there are things that I have done to be more deserving of the grace of God and the people over there, they should just pull up their bootstraps. They need to get their life in order. They need to clean up their life. And the very grace of God that he meant to give to us so that we could plumb the depths of his mercy becomes a source of pride. A source of pride. That's how backwards our hearts get it from time to time. And that's why Paul wants them to see. If you want to address the issue of pride in your heart, here's what you have to see. Here's what you have to do. You have to realize that the grace that you have received in Jesus is not deserved. It is unmerited. And you have done nothing in, uh, in and of yourself to deserve it. Maybe the, the best example of this that we find in Scripture, and you can take note of this and read the context later, is Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, the story of the unmerciful servant or the wicked servant. What happens in this story? A servant comes before a king, and he owes literally hundreds of lifetimes worth of debt. He would never be able to pay the debt. And he comes before the king, and he says, be merciful to me, and I will repay the debt, which is a joke, because he could never do it. But the king looks at him, and he forgives him of his entire debt. Meanwhile, he goes off to another servant of his after receiving the grace from the king. And this young servant owes him a few days wages. And he says, pay what you owe. And he says, once again, be merciful to me and I will repay. And this time he actually could give him a couple days and he could repay him. But he throws him in prison. And at the end of the story, the king approaches this wicked servant and he says to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you so much more than you are willing to forgive for your neighbor. And ultimately, Paul wants us to see that this is the heart of the issue for this little church. We can get to all the other topical sins, and we'll get there. But the one thing you have to see first is that the favor of God that God has given to you is unmerited, that he has paid your debt. So perhaps you've heard of the faith versus works debate. On one side of the issue, someone might say, you are saved by faith and faith alone, and therefore, you can live like hell because you're going to hell anyway, and God's grace is bottomless. And on the other side, they're saying, no, 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 no. You not only have to have faith, but you have to work because we all know that God grades on a curve. And yet, as I've shared with you already, the beautiful grace of the gospel says both of these things are wrong. They're twin pitfalls on the road. And what we have to see is that the grace of God has been given to us in advance. You have been saved by God. So here's a way of thinking like this. On the one side, moralism says that if you live like heaven, you can go to heaven. And cheap grace says you can live like hell and you'll go to heaven anyway. But the grace of God says you lived like hell. You are deserving of hell. But God paid the way for you. Through the blood of the risen lamb, you have been set free. And as I've shared with you already, only after the ink is dry on the adoption papers does God say to you, go and live like the child that you are. Don't you see everything that I have done for you? 
Don't you see the incredible sacrifice that I made through my son and through your rescuer, Jesus? Go and live like the child of God that you already are. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And so this book, it's real, it's gritty, it's honest, it's raw, and I promise you, it will offend you. It will offend you. There is so much in this book that bears offense. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, we have to see the essence of what this book is all about. It's all about grace. And as a pastor, I want to give you a bit of a forewarning. I think the natural temptation for us when it comes to topics of sin that we might not necessarily struggle with is we're going to be really, really tempted to bring our binocular Bibles here and to leave our mirror Bibles at home. But my encouragement to you as your pastor, leave the binocular Bibles at home. When we get to topics that you might not necessarily struggle with, that, that might not be yours to bear, that you're struggling with something else, that we don't instantly think, oh my goodness, is Uncle Joe here this morning? He, he really needs to hear this. I'm sorry if your name's Joe. But like, that's gonna be the temptation. Avoid it. Avoid it. Bring your mirror Bibles here. Here's what we need to be willing to do. If you're, if you're writing notes, consider writing this down. Our call is to evaluate our own hearts and to examine every aspect of our lives through the lens of the gospel. Our call is to evaluate our own hearts and to be strict examiners of our own lives through the beautiful lens of the gospel. So when it comes to what we might call sin in the camp, right? Sins that, that are happening in the capital C church or even here at Gateway, that we would be strict examiners of ourselves. And then when it comes to issues of freedoms that we might have, that we would always put others first before ourselves. But the temptation is always to get that backwards that we bring our binoculars and we hang on to our freedoms. God says, bring your mirrors and consider others greater than yourself. That is the method that Paul wants us to see. And this is made even more clear with the first issue that we find in this story. What is the issue that we look at very next in verse 10? They were divided by pride. Pride. That's what they're banging their head on. Look at verse 10 with me. If you have a, an NIV translation like me, you will see the words, I appeal to you. And this is two Greek words that have been put together. The first one is day, which means but or and or also. And then the next word is parakaleo, which means to beg in earnest. And so what Paul is saying is, and now, in light of everything that you just heard about the grace of God, and now I beg of you, in earnest, I plead with you to hear what I'm about to say. And then he says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you say, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. 
Another says, I follow Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so none of you can say that you are baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I, I love that. That's like a senior moment in the Apostle Paul. It's like, oh, I can't quite remember how many people I baptized. I did I bapt like, I bet none of you have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16 on a mug or a t-shirt or the back of your car. But what I love about it is it's real, it's raw, like a real book written to real people at a real time in a real place. But the whole point of this is Paul is saying, why are you divided amongst different leaders? I follow Paul or I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. Do you not realize we're all a pencil in the hands of a poet? We are all clay in the hands of a potter. We are all a paintbrush in the hands of a painter. Who am I? Who am I? This has everything to do with Jesus. And then he ends this way. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, let the lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, the first thing I want to address with you is you have been saved by grace. You have nothing to boast in, and yet you're still fighting. Why? When we look at the things that this church was fighting over, we might want to laugh. Friends, we might look at them and say, what a bunch of silly things to fight about. Your favorite teachers. Uh, later on, we'll find out they're fighting over whether they should have meat sacrificed to idols. They're fighting over whether or not men should be circumcised. They're fighting about um, when the Sabbath day begins, right? Is it like at sundown or is it at midnight? And based on that, how should we live our lives? And we look at those things, we go, how silly, how silly. But again, there's nothing new under the sun. Like 2,000 years later, Christians are doing the same thing. We might not be fighting over Apollos, but don't we fight over dead European dudes? Right, like I'm a follower of John Calvin. I follow Wesley. I follow Menno Simons, right? I'm a dispensationalist. There's many Christians who still fight and build bridges and, and fences over the same sorts of things. And then, you know, we don't argue about meat sacrifice to idols, but Christians still fight over theological fine points, over what sort of or what style of worship is more godly and more beautiful than another. And we don't fight over whether or not we should get circumcised, but Christians today still fight over sacraments, like how should someone get baptized, a sprinkle or a dunk? Or when should it happen? Or where and how should we have communion? Should we have it in homes or in big places with a wafer, with a piece of bread, with wine, with juice? We still argue about the same sorts of things. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. So we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. We're grappling with the same stuff. The same sorts of things. Things haven't changed. But the Apostle Paul pleads with the people of God that there would be unity. And there's two reasons for that. We see two reasons in Scripture. Let me address them really quickly. The first one is this, that Jesus prayed for it. He prayed that the people of God would be united. Here's what Jesus says in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples turned apostles. 
I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So the bar for unity is the unity of God the Father and God the Son. That's a high bar. That's a high bar. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see how many times Jesus uses the word one and the word unity in those few short verses? And here's the second reason, and we see this also from Jesus. Jesus commanded it, and he tells us that non-Christians can judge us by it. This comes from John chapter 13. Jesus says this, a new command I give you. Command, not advice. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These are the commands of Jesus. And so for the time that we have remaining this morning, I wanna really quickly identify what unity is not and what it is. Because that's really what's flowing from this opening chapter and everything else that they're going to talk about from here. It's all um, surrendered or surrounded by the topic of unity. So here's what I want you to see. Unity is not uniformity. It's not uniformity. We are not meant to be carbon copies of one another. We all have uniqueness across the board, and the beauty and the complexity of the church is we see that it is one banner under God in which all people from every tribe, every tongue, every race, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic class, every background, they all come together under the banner of Jesus. So much so, Jesus says this, that when the world looks at us and they see the incredible diversity within the church, they go, how is it possible that such a mishmash of people could all get along in the same place. Like, what's in the water at Gateway? What are they drinking? What's going on? And they are amazed, amazed. And so unity is not uniformity. God did this by design. And then number two, unity is not avoiding issues or overlooking sin. It is not avoiding issues or overlooking sin. We do not, for the sake of unity, hide issues under the rug. The book of Corinthians goes right after these issues. Like, I I think one of the ways that you can describe the book of 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like a rip letter. Here's the issue, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one. He's gonna get into it. And it's gonna feel sometimes like he's got the boxing gloves on. But it all starts with grace, It all starts with grace. God wants us to see that the reason why he's giving this instruction to us is so that we can grow in Christ-likeness because we have been set apart by God. And so he goes at them after establishing their oneness in Christ Jesus. But what's the temptation for us when we're addressing sin in the camp? If we're honest, as a result of our sin nature, the traitor within, friends, is that when we see sin over there, we are more tempted to gossip, 
or to triangulate or to treat people like issues to be solved as opposed to people to be loved. And then our posture gets ugly and we fight and we pontificate with one another. But imagine if we had less pit bulls for Jesus and more people who were deeply in love with others who are running far away from God. Like just picture this for a moment. If you genuinely believe that someone is living in sin and that sin is causing them to run from God and perhaps you, you even believe that that sin is not only causing them to run from God but to be in danger of the fire of hell, would you not then say that we should be compelled to love them more, not less? that our heart would go toward them because we know that as a result of the life that they're living, that they are in danger of the fire of hell? Like imagine if you had a dear friend who's about to drive off a cliff. Would you not say to them, I know what you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say, what an idiot. You would say, stop, where are you going? With tears flooding in your eyes. And Paul says, oh, we, we got to get the posture right. We cannot be filled with pride. When it comes to matters of sin, we cannot be filled with pride. That we would be people, when we address issues in our life or with a friend or a family member who's walking away from God, it would be more like meeting at a coffee shop with Bibles open, saying, do, do you interpret Scripture the same way that I do? Can, can we use the Word of God to evaluate how we are called to live as obedient children of the king? Can we have that conversation? And that pride would be crushed and that we can address sin in a loving way as opposed to in a condescending way. So what does unity actually look like? Two things, really quick. Number one, unity honors diversity in calling and in taste. One of the things that I love about the church is that we are all called to expand God's kingdom in the world, albeit in very different ways because we all have a unique contribution to make. Some of us are going to, do, to go overseas as missionaries. Some of us are gonna stay right here and we are gonna be godly teachers or CEOs or custodians or uh, parents and we're gonna make a contribution right where we are. But together as the body of Christ in all of our uniqueness, God will have us as the church expand his kingdom. And we'll even have unity, uh, even though we don't have the same taste. Like, we might come to a church, and we're all going to worship, but then when you get back in your car, some of you, you're going to do, like, the Christian version of Nickelback, right? And you're going to rock out in your car. And some of you, you, you prefer something more solemn and subtle, and you, you'll be listening to the classics or the stringed instruments. And some of you even, I don't know why, but, you know, you, you prefer the southern twang of country, and God bless you, you know? But we have diversity, Diversity, and God says it's all beautiful. And we see in, in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter 21, every tribe, tongue, and nation under God comes around the throne room of the Lamb and we worship him in our uniqueness and in our diversity and in all the beauty. We are a beautiful mosaic. And God says all of it is good, it is good, it is good. I do not want uniformity. I want unity in the midst of our differences that it's beautiful, it's beautiful. It's something to be cherished and loved, not something to fight about. And then number two, unity gives other Christians the same grace God gives us. So here's a question, I wanna, I wanna end with this. Uh, who here by a show of hands 
has um, ever changed their mind. <laughs> Who here by a show of hands has ever changed their mind? All right, all right, come on, come on. Okay, who here by a show of hands um, has ever thought one way about something and even, you know, you've had friends or family members tell you that they thought your way was wrong, but then you reconsidered it, you realized you were wrong, and then you changed your mind. Okay, look around the room, everyone. Look, 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 look. We've, we've changed. And aren't you glad, for those of you who've had this experience, aren't you glad that your family members or your Christian friends gave you the space to work those things out until you realized the truth for what it is? Aren't you glad they didn't beat you over the head? And is it possible that what we can do is that we can give people 20 miles to turn the rig around, whatever that is in kilometers, that we can give each other space to experience the grace of God and that we would lean in and realize that the grace of God that God has bestowed upon us needs to be lavished upon all of God's people. Can we as a church be willing to do that? In so doing, God will do great things. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway. <laughs>